when I first joined the Army, I enlisted as a human resources specialist. And after coming back from basic and advanced training, I was assigned to a combat support hospital in their administrative section. And I had a supervisor named Colonel Heck. And Colonel Heck was a very model of what a gruff old soldier was like. I mean, he was, you know, always drinking his coffee black, always, you know, going outside to, to either smoke or for uh, sometimes he would switch over to get his nicotine from uh, snuff. And just, you know, just if you think about an old soldier, man, that, that he's just the model of it. And one of the things that happened is as I worked with him, uh, he kind of realized I was in an interesting spot because I went into the Army later in life and I had uh, been a teacher for a few years. So I had some administrative skills already and I was a little older. And so we got along a little better uh, than he might have with some of the younger soldiers. And I quickly kind of just became his his go to guy to go deliver messages, to go, you know, sit in meetings, to take notes for things, to file papers and you know, specific ways. It kind of became trusted by him. And what would end up happening a lot of times is he would send me to deliver messages to people. Now, remember, this is before the Internet really got super huge uh, and smartphones were not the norm. OK, so if you wanted to get in touch with somebody, you didn't just send them a text message. You would have to actually talk to them. And because he was a busy guy, he would send me, you know, as a junior enlisted guy to go and give his messages to people. A lot of times this meant giving messages to people that outranked me, sometimes by a very large margin because in a, in a hospital, man, we've got everything from, you know, sergeant first class, master sergeant, you know, all the way on the officer side, all the way up to a lot of lieutenant colonels and colonels, you know, because medical people uh, tend to um, have higher ranks because of their specialized education. So here I was, you know, a specialist, and even when I made sergeant, going around and talking to these people that far outrank me and telling them to do things, giving them orders and directives. But here's the thing. They did not listen to me and obey me because of who I was. They were willing to be obedient to those commands because of who I represented. You see, I did not go in my own authority. I did not give commands in my personal authority. I gave it based off of the rank in the command of Colonel Heck because of his rank, because of his senior position. And they would listen and obey because I went as his ambassador, as his representative in his authority. And I think because of the way our nation works, we really don't understand authority. You see, we live in a nation where because we're citizens, we all have equal rights, and that's wonderful. I think that, and yes, I realize that, that we still have a long way to work with overcoming racism and, and struggles of the past and gender inequality and issues with minority populations. Totally get that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But under the letter of the law of our Constitution and our, our legal codification of our country, we all have equal rights. What, 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 isn't that what our founding documents say, that, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that everyone has those rights? 
And so because of that, we truly don't get authority. Even when we have bosses and supervisors, we want to see ourselves on equal footing with them because after all, aren't we all citizens? Aren't we all you know, human beings? Don't we all have the same equality? And yes, that's correct. God made every one of us with equal value. But that does not mean that we all have equal position. My boss is my boss. He is in authority over me. His boss, my boss's boss, is in authority over them in a higher position. And so they have power over me in my position at my job. In the military, I have a, a rank that has me kind of in the middle. I have people under me, and I have people above me that supervise me. And as a result, man, people that have this understanding of authority can understand how the, the power that comes with authority really works. Because here's what has happened in our country, not just because of the equality that we have, you know, that we see that, that, that for example, one of the things that has happened a lot, you know, and I work in hospitals and in, in the medical field as a hospital chaplain. And one of the things that I see on the regular, all, it happens all the time, is somebody thinks that just because they can go on the Internet and search information, they have access to all of this information, that there's no need to respect and revere experts anymore. If you know a person goes to the mechanic and the mechanic tells them something, if they don't like what they hear, they go on the internet and search it up to, to try and find the information that fits what they want it to be. You know, if my mechanic says, "Hey James, you know you've got to completely replace this one part and it's going to cost you three thousand dollars," I'm going to be tempted to go on the internet and try to analyze the symptoms and make that be something uh, a problem that's easier to fix, like a couple hundred dollars for a sensor, maybe. Right? If I go to a doctor a physician or medical specialist, and they tell me I have a sickness and I don't like that diagnosis, then I'm going to go online and do some search of some medical websites to try to find out hey, that it might be something else that's more preferable, right? We don't have, as a result, we don't have a reverence and a respect for the expert anymore. And this has bled over into the church. The same lack of uh, appreciation for authority and understanding of authority that we have in our normal everyday life has bled into the church. And as a result, we've seen the rise of what is known as the authority of the believer or the believer's authority. And this has created a lot of sticky wickets within the theology and the doctrines of the Christian church and the Christian faith. And as a result of this misunderstanding, we have gotten some corrupted theology, some bad teaching, some poor doctrine, and poor understanding of the Scripture. And so if you've been following us in this series of being suspicious of the supernatural, this is the next step in the process. The first thing we looked at was starting skeptically. And as we looked at starting skeptically, we came to understand that being suspicious of the supernatural helps us to examine the evidence. Being suspicious of the supernatural helps us to examine the evidence properly, that we don't want to go to the extreme of blind faith or to the other extreme of cynicism. We want to be healthily skeptical, right in the middle, to, to be open, but also willing to analyze the information to make sure it matches up with the teaching of the Scripture. Then we talked about how do we understand miracles properly, and we looked at how so many people misunderstand miracles, and we learned that miracles show the power of the kingdom and draw others to it. 
miracles, show the power of the kingdom, and draw others to it. And so that lets us know that miracles are things that still happen today. They're not something that has ceased to happen, and we still see the, the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the church to, to prove the, the, and display the power of God's kingdom and to draw people who don't, non-believers, people who are, who are seeking the truth, it draws others to the kingdom. So today we're going to look at authority. What is the authority of the believer, the authority of the person who's a follower of Jesus? Do we have any amazing supernatural authority to declare things and make them happen? I see this on the on a, a regular basis in, in teaching, especially in the rise of what's called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is the belief, and you see this in it's been around, you know, since the 70s and 80s, that there's this belief that if I am a follower of Jesus, then I should be healthy, wealthy, wise, and prosperous. That, that, that prosperity gospel preachers and people who are in the similar vein teach things like followers of Jesus should never be sick. That sickness has to flee at the name of Jesus, right? That so we should, Christians should never be sick. They also teach that Christians should never encounter adversity. That trials and adversity in our life are, are tricks of the devil. And that by standing on the authority of the believer, we can declare these problems and mountains have to move in our lives, right? Didn't Jesus teach that, right? That, that if you have enough faith, you can speak to the mountains and they have to move, right? And so not only does sickness not have a place in the life of the believer, that adversity has no place in the life of the believer. And thirdly, they teach that poverty has no place in the life of the believer. That, that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you should experience financial prosperity in your life. And that if you are not experiencing those things, if you're experiencing sickness, if you're experiencing adversity, and if you're experiencing financial struggles, then you need to have more faith and you need to speak to that and declare in the name of Jesus that those things have to change. That sickness has to leave your body in the name of Jesus. That adversity and trials have to disappear from your life in the name of Jesus. And that you should never experience financial struggles. That you should experience prosperity. That's where it gets the name, the prosperity gospel from. Now, this is something I could teach on specifically on its own. But I can simply tell you, look at the life of Jesus, the apostles, the early church, the church fathers. And ask yourself if they experienced those three things. Did they experience physical ailments? For sure. You know, Lazarus died, you know, and yes, Jesus rose him back to life, but he died again, you know. Peter, you know, and, and you know, experienced people coming in and, and having sicknesses that they healed. Yes, but they didn't heal every person, right? Plenty of people in the, in the days of Jesus, you know, that were followers of Jesus experienced these struggles in their lives. Even Paul had a thorn in his flesh, that even asking three times for God to remove it, what happened? He said, no, I'm not going to remove it. That He said that what your or my strength is made perfect in your weakness, right? And so we see that believers do experience sickness. We see that believers do experience adversity. Jesus told his disciples, in this life, you will have trouble. He told them that. And what happened to every one of the, of the apostles? Judas you know, was removed, but he was replaced with Matthias. And Matthias and all of the others, with the exception of John the Apostle, they were all killed for their faith. 
They were all put to death for their faith. And if you believe the record of church history, the apostle John, they attempted to boil him in oil and he would not die. So they sent him to live the rest of his life on a prison island where he wrote the, the book of Revelation. This is, this is plenty of adversity that they experienced for being followers of Jesus. And they did not all experience financial prosperity. Do we see wealthy Christians in the Bible? Absolutely. Lydia, who we see in the book of Acts, was blessed with a business that dyed purple cloth. She had wealth, and she used it for God's glory. So we see these things, right? But we also know that Jesus said, what, foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We see that the disciples were not wealthy. They didn't have mansions and palaces, despite what some modern teachers would say. So if we're going to truly understand how to live in God's kingdom, we have to counteract these false teachings. We have to stay away from the extremes of things like the prosperity gospel, or as the slang term, the name it and claim it idea, right? We have to understand how authority works to keep from misusing it. How do we do that? I feel like I say this every time we talk about any spiritual issue, but balance is the key. Balance is the key because God always works in balance and never in extremes. God is always about balance, never about extremes. I mean, think about this. When God created, what, what did he create? The heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, the land and the water and the sky. I mean, all these things are balanced out, male and female, right? God didn't just create one kind of human. He created male and female. And what do we find almost always? Not not 100%, but almost always, we find that couples, that opposites attract. This is true in my life. If you were to meet my wife, you would see a lot of opposites in our lives, in our personalities, in our the way we handle things. And as a result, we balance things out, even in our spiritual lives. I am much more theologically and doctrinally minded. I love studying things like church history, the writings of the church fathers, understanding the deep systematic theology of the faith. And my wife is much more attracted to the emotional sides of the faith, the experiential part of the faith. And that's, we balance each other out that way. The same thing is true with generosity. Think about things like generosity and kindness. You can be so generous that you make yourself impoverished. If I were to be so generous to give all of our family's money away, then I would have nothing set aside to take care of my family for medical emergencies or to send our children to college or for us to, to be able to pay our bills. Does that mean that God doesn't want me to be generous? No, absolutely not. He wants us to have balance. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. And so this also applies to authority. So here's what we need to understand, is that authority of the believer exists, but it works just like the example I explained to you in my military experience. We have authority, but that authority is given to us by God. We go in His representing His authority, not our own authority. In our, in our own, by ourselves, outside of Christ, we have no authority, we have no rights, we have no ability to make up for our wrongs. That's why Jesus had to come in and, and put on flesh to become a human, to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death. This is what it's all about. And so how do we find this balance of saying, yes, we do have authority, but it's balanced because we go in Christ's authority? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And I apologize once again 
for jumping around in Scripture. But the two places I'm really going to camp on today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and John chapter 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and John chapter 14, and I'm going to ref refer to some other passages, and you can write them down if you want to. If you want to turn and follow along, if you're really quick with your uh, Bible you know, page turning and you know where we're going, please follow along. But if not, write down the references and study them more and to make sure that, you, that we understand the context appropriately, because we never want to twist the Bible to fit our beliefs. We want to twist the belief, our beliefs to fit the Bible. And sadly, that's what's happened to a lot of people that end up um, teaching false doctrine. I believe many of them do it with a good heart. I just believe that they've either been taught wrong generationally, or they have taken the scripture out of context, even with a good heart. Now, to be sure, there are plenty of false teachers out there that teach bad doctrine, and they do it on purpose to make money and to build their kingdom. We've talked about that before with the idea of miracles, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to find that balance. So here's where we first need to start. The first thing we need to understand, and a lot of this is going to be reviewed for you if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while. The first thing that we need to understand is that all good things come from God. All good things come from God. And if you look in James chapter 1, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing a letter to Christians in the first century. And I love what he ends up sitting, saying to them, starting in verse 16, talking about temptation and, and the struggles of life. You know, he, 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 Earlier in the passage, he says that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. <laughs> so once again, we can throw out that prosperity gospel idea that you should never encounter adversity because James is explaining that God blesses people who go through adversity and temptation and struggles. Right, And so down in verse 16, he continues by saying, So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possessions. I love that. So we know all good things come from God. When David was setting aside the resources that he was going to give to Solomon, his son, to build the temple, in his prayer, he prays to God, and this is my paraphrase, saying that, that God, what can we give you except the things that you first gave us? You see, even those things of time, talents, and treasure, all of those things come from God. So all good things come from God. It means even the authority and power we have in our lives. Second, we see as an echo of what King David prayed, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the talents, or we call it the parable of the servants as well, where a man who is a wealthy man leaves on a business journey and he trusts his servants with money. And if we were to, to, to measure that out in modern money, it would be one servant would receive approximately three and a half million, one would, dollars, one would receive approximately $1.5 million, and one would receive approximately $750,000. This is not chump change, okay? And the first two servants you know recognize that they are stewards of the master's money, invest it, and double what they started with. But the third servant 
wants it to be his, and so he hides it in the ground, hoping the master will never return. If the master dies on his journey and does not return, then that money can become the servant's. That's why he's a wicked and lazy servant, the master calls him. Why? Because he, Jesus uses this parable to teach us that everything we have comes from God, that we are stewards of those things, and that one day God's going to judge how well we use the things he gives us, the time, talents, and treasures that we all have in differing amounts. So first we see that all good things come from God. The second thing we see is that we are stewards of God's resources. We have been given authority through him to do things here on the earth. It's not our own authority. I don't go in the authority of James. I don't go in the authority of Jesus. And then this is one of the passages that we're going to jump into quickly into Ephesians chapter 2 that is often mistranslated. That we see that because we're stewards of God's resources, one of those resources is that we are seated with Christ through Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, you hear this verse, right, that we see um, in, in, verse, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, says that for he, Christ, raised us from the dead, or he, God, excuse me, raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. And what some pastors and teachers will try to say is, see, we're seated with Christ. That means we're seating, seated in the same position as he has at the right hand of the Father. That means we have the same authority that Jesus has. That means that the same way that Jesus could speak to demons, we can speak to demons. The same way that Jesus could speak to the, to the, to the weather and storms, then we can speak to weather and storms. The same way that Jesus can speak to sickness and demanded to go away, to, to raise the dead, right? They say that because we're seated with Jesus, we have the same exact authority as Jesus. And this is not what that passage is saying. This is a further reminder that we have authority because Christ has authority. And we can only do the things he gives us the authority to do. I mean, think about it this way. What if I were to go and abuse the authority that Colonel Heck gave me? What if I started going to other people that outranked me and say, hey, Colonel Heck said I could have the rest of the day off. Colonel Heck said I, I need to go down to the coffee shop and get us coffee, pick him up some lunch. Colonel Heck said, you know what, I need to be able to come in late because I was working on a project for him. And he never said or did those things, never gave me that, that, that permission, and I just abused the authority he had given me. What's going to happen? Oh yeah, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> and I'm also going to lose, you know, that standing with him, that trust from him. That's what is happening in this day and age. People are being taught to abuse the authority God has given us. You see, when we're seated with Christ, that doesn't mean we're seated as Christ. Just because we're seated with Christ doesn't mean we're seated as Christ. We are subordinates under him. Now, to be sure, Jesus told the disciples that because I go to the Father, he said that in John 14, right? He said that because I go to the Father, you're going to do more than I can do. You do greater things than I have done, right? And he says that in, 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 you know, in, in the passage, he says that um, – you know, as we, we go through, look, look at what he says. He says that um, in John 14, he tells them that, um, oh, oh gosh, where is that? He says that, um, 
in John 12, John 14, excuse me, verse 12, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Now, yes, we are doing greater works, but that doesn't mean that I can walk up and raise the dead on my own authority, at my own command. I can't tell a sickness it has to leave at my own will. You see, when we do that, when we take this verse and we twist it out of its context, we make God a genie. We are not in our own authority. We are in Christ's authority. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 5, where we are Christ's ambassadors. Really quickly, as I begin to, to wrap a lot of this stuff up for the day. This is deep. We could spend days talking about this. This is very basic, okay? But look at what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this starting in verse 16. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. That means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. And he says this, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. That reminder again that everything comes from him. He said, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to himself. See, Christ has given us the authority. Christ has given us the position. And in verse 19, he says this, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. You see, this is the balance. And Paul so eloquently wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that passage to remind us that we are ambassadors. Do we have authority? Yes, but it's authority that comes from Jesus. We represent him. We are not him. We represent his power. We don't have his power. We represent his position. We do not have his position. We are seated with him, but we are seated in subordination to him. So what do we do with this? How do we keep from taking all of this out of context? We need to recognize that just because I declare something doesn't mean God will deliver it. I go in his authority. I do not have his authority. There's a very big difference. We have access to the miraculous, but only at God's will. I want to use one final passage in John 14 and John, John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. We're going to bring up a familiar and misused passage. And he says this. Just as we read in verse 12, I tell you the truth, in John 14, verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, even greater works, because I'm going to the Father. So yes, we're going to do the same things, but we don't do it at, his, at our own command. Look at what he says in verse 13. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. So the Son of can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, at a first reading, on our own understanding, this sounds like we can do whatever we want in the name of Jesus. That saying in Jesus' name is a magical spell. But that's, that gets us whatever we want. But put that into practice. Go ask for anything you want and see if it happens. It's not going to happen every time. Why? Because it's not my will, it's his will. We see this modeled in the life of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus could have 
had every authority to say, no, I'm not going to the cross. But he said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. You see, this is how authority works. When Jesus tells his followers, and he echoes it in John 16, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but you can read it on your own. In John chapter 16, he says, before you didn't ask in my name, but now you can, and you'll get what you asked for. That's my paraphrase, right? But here's the thing. To a Jewish person, to ask in the name of God for something is to put yourself under the umbrella of God's authority, and to say, God, I'm asking for this, but I recognize you're the giver. This is why I can ask God to heal people, and he doesn't always do it. I have the faith. I've seen him do it before. This is why I can ask in the name of God for a sickness to go away, and it doesn't always go away. So I can ask for God to, to, to help us out in our financial struggles, but he doesn't always. Why? Because just because I declare it doesn't mean God will deliver it. I am not Christ. I am his ambassador. I do not go in my own authority. I go in his authority. I don't have his authority. I go under his authority. There's a very big difference. So I hope this helps you with this process. Dig deeper into it, and you'll always see that just because I declare it doesn't mean God has to deliver it. God is not my genie. He's not your genie. And so miracles find their place by us submitting to the umbrella of God's authority. And when we call on the name of Jesus, we submit to his authority and we say, God, if you're willing, you can do this. But we trust you and we submit to your authority in the process. Just because we declare it doesn't mean God will deliver it. And that's how the authority of the believer works. Be blessed this week.